Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. For those of you who are maybe less familiar with uh, your Bible, if you're not looking it up on your phone, uh, the book of Romans, which is actually a letter, uh, will be about three quarters of the way uh, through your Bible. And and, uh, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome approximately 57 AD, so it's about 20 years after uh, the events of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry. And the portion of Paul's letter that we're going to be looking at tonight is his introduction uh, to this church. He's greeting them, and he's setting out the message which he uh, preaches and which he hopes to encourage uh, these Roman Christians with as well. So we'll be looking at the first 17 verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing... I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Our Father in heaven, you are the one who is able to strengthen us. And we pray, Lord, that through this message, your word, that you would strengthen us according to your gospel and that you would strengthen us through the preaching of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you would do this so that we would grow up into maturity in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would do this so that you might bring forth in us the obedience of faith. And lastly, Lord, we ask that you would do this so that you, the only wise God, would receive all the glory, for it's all due to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you uh, came to church this evening, I hope you came ready to give. Now, some of you are hearing that and you think, aha, right, there's the pastor, right, immediately speaking of uh, money, uh, and he just wants us to give our cash. 
Uh, well, while I stand 100% behind that statement, that you should come to church ready to give, I want to qualify that statement and clarify that statement for you. By qualification, when I say I hope that you came ready to give, I'm speaking specifically to those in my hearing who would uh, um, confess to be or claim to be Christians. When Christians come to church, they should come ready to give. As my clarification, though, I would say that by giving, I am not referring, at least not primarily, to uh, giving financially or giving of a, a check in the offering plate or something like that. Now, the Bible speaks a great deal about uh, money, and there's lots of places we could go to uh, discuss that. Paul is certainly not afraid to do it. But that's not Paul's primary concern in these verses. Rather, in these verses, what I want us to see is that we are challenged to think about the gift of encouragement with the gospel that we're to give to one another. Now, too often times, uh, our understanding of why we come together on Sundays as uh, Christians or why we come together uh, during the week in different group settings, uh, too often times that's too uh, restricted. Uh, we come because we expect uh, or we believe that we're expected to give some act of worship uh, or um, just out of a sense of obligation. And certainly, the Bible affirms the importance that we would come uh, to worship together, to be fed by God's Word and nourished by it. And certainly, the Bible uh, understands that there's an obligation that we have uh, to give our Creator worship. But the Bible grounds its exhortation for Christians to gather not only in an obligation that we joyfully fulfill in worship, and not only in a ministry that we gladly and necessarily receive in worship, but also in a ministry that we mutually exchange. And so, if you're a Christian, I hope you came to church ready to give. Because when the gospel of Jesus takes hold of a person, not just as a, a true set of concepts, but as the defining reality in your life, as Paul had experienced it, you will be eager to encourage your fellow Christians by rehearsing again and again and again the glories of the gospel that we confess as believers because you know that the gospel is God's powerful message of salvation. And so this is what I hope that we'll see from this text tonight. There's a lot there. We're not going to get to all of it, but this is what I hope we'll see. That when a Christian or when a congregation is gripped by the gospel, we will eagerly seek out opportunities to strengthen our fellow Christians with that gospel. Paul's message and Paul's ex uh, his example in these verses have ramifications for us in terms of how we think about why we go to church, why we gather uh, together in things like small groups, why these matter uh, uh, in the life of the church. And so I think it's an appropriate time for us to consider uh, these verses together. And so I want to show you this main idea by looking at three points. First, the message of the gospel then the ministry of the gospel, and then the power of the gospel. The message of the gospel, ministry of the gospel, and power of the gospel. Now, at this point, I have mentioned this word gospel several uh, times, but I have not yet explained exactly what the word means. And an explanation is necessary, both because of the importance of the gospel. As Christians, we believe that uh, the gospel is a matter uh, in which uh, eternal joy and eternal misery hang in the balance. So the gospel is important that we explain what it is, but it's also um, 
it's also important we explain what the gospel is because of the great confusion that exists as to what the gospel is and what it's not. So we can't rightly speak of being gripped by the gospel or encouraging others with the gospel if we're not first clear on what the gospel is. Now, uh, the word gospel has its origins, at least in the English language, in an old English phrase, which means good news, which you might know. Inside the church, however, uh, the gospel is sometimes a vague and fuzzy notion, which we cannot readily explain. I've often had the opportunity to speak with professing Christians and ask them, uh, what do you understand the gospel to be? What does this mean if this is so important to our lives together as Christians? And I've heard a variety of answers. Some people have told me that the gospel is the Bible. And while it's certainly true that the gospel is contained in the Bible, uh, since the gospel is uh, the good news, uh, the Bible cannot be the gospel just as a whole because the Bible also contains words of of judgment uh, and and words of, of warning and condemnation. Nor is the gospel merely the message that Jesus is a king and that his kingdom has come. Now, this is certainly true, and it's wonderful, and we delight in Jesus as our king, but on its own, this is not the gospel, because so much depends on how the coming king feels about you. If the coming king likes you, then then his coming may be good news, but what if you betrayed the coming king? The arrival of the Allied forces in occupied Europe was good news for many, but if you were a Nazi collaborator, it was certainly not good news. And, quite soberingly, the Bible would tell us that we are, in effect, on account of our sin, those who have betrayed God, and we are like Nazi collaborators. We betrayed the righteous king, our creator, and unless something is done to deal with our betrayal, his coming will be for us patently bad news. But the good news is that something has been done to deal with our betrayal, God has done it, and this is the gospel. And so whether you are here tonight as a longtime Christian or someone who's just exploring what Christianity is all about, I want to give you as clear a definition of the gospel as I can, and I want to show you that definition from the passage that we've looked at. It's not just Wayne Veenstra's thoughts, but it comes from the Apostle Paul and, more importantly, from the Holy Spirit. So here's my definition, that the good news of the Bible is Jesus who was fully God and fully man, who died and was raised from the dead, just as God promised ahead of time. And it's this message that by believing in this Jesus, we may have life in his name. So it's so important, I want to repeat this, that the good news of the Bible is Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, who died and was raised again from the dead, just as God promised ahead of time. And it's the message that by believing in this Jesus, you may have life in his name. So let me unpack this message from our text by making four assertions as to what the gospel is. First, we need to see that the gospel is a personal message. And when I say personal here, uh, I, I mean it in the sense that the gospel is a message concerning a person. The good news is not a set of abstract ideas. It's not a way of life. It's not an attitude. The good news, which the the Bible declares, centers on a person. 
We see this in verses 1 through 3. After Paul introduces himself as a servant and messenger of Christ, he then uh, sets out that he has been set apart for the gospel of God concerning the Son of God, who is, Paul identifies later, Jesus Christ our Lord. Most simply, Jesus is the gospel. And Paul spells out for us who Jesus is by saying that he is descended from David. David, a great king of of Israel. Uh, Jesus descended from David according to the flesh. The biographical accounts of Jesus all confirm this. They make a point of emphasizing this, that Jesus was a man who was born of of the royal line of King David. This line was particularly significant for anyone who knew their Old Testament because they knew that God had made promises that he would send his promised rescuer, his promised deliverer, the one who would deal with the effects of sin, he would send that promised rescuer through one of David's offspring. But Jesus is also the eternal Son of God. He's not only human, but he's God in the flesh. In him, the scripture says, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's the one through whom the world was created. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And he's the exact imprint of his nature. The Apostle John begins his gospel by saying that Jesus is God. And later he testifies that the Jews attempted to put Jesus to death because he claimed to be equal with God. To put it simply, the gospel which Paul is going to set forth in this letter and which he introduces in these verses is the message of Jesus who was fully God and fully man. The gospel is also, though, a historical message because it depends on real events that happened at a definite time and at particular places. The first four accounts of of Jesus, or the four accounts of Jesus' life, rather, record the history of a person. They speak of how Jesus was born under uh, the reign of Caesar Augustus, how he was born to a virgin mother. He was a refugee who fled to Egypt and, and then returned and grew up in Galilee. He was a preacher who performed miracles showing that he had power over nature and over sin uh, and, and even over death. All of these things, historical events which took place before eyewitnesses. But at the center of this story, all four biographers of Jesus agree, are two closely linked events. Jesus' death by crucifixion and his resurrection from the grave three days later. By his death, Jesus paid the penalty our sins deserved. And by his resurrection, Jesus was proved to be the Son of God in power. He was vindicated as the one who gave life for his people. And just think, before Jesus' resurrection, uh, whether he was wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, or whether he was hanging naked uh, on the cross as he was suffering there, there he was uh, uh, manifest as the Son of God cloaked in human frailty. His appearance was nondescript. He grew tired and needed sleep. In his humanity, he was subject to death. But after his resurrection, as he was raised up from the dead, gone is any semblance of weakness. Raised bodily, raised truly from the dead, Jesus' resurrection, Paul says, is the clear and bold unveiling that here is the Son of God in power, the exalted one. The gospel is also, though, a predicted message. Paul makes this point to emphasize that the message of Jesus is one that was foretold centuries beforehand. The good news about Jesus was promised beforehand through God's prophets. It was recorded in the Old Testament. Now, if you're a baseball fan like I am, you might know about uh, the debates surrounding the 1932 World Series. 
And there's Babe Ruth who comes up to the plate uh, and, and there's grainy video footage that appears like maybe he's pointing out uh, uh, to the outfield. And sure enough, on the next pitch, uh, there the great Bambino hits a home run in a World Series game. And it's debated, okay, was the babe calling his, his shot? Was he predicting ahead of time this great feat that he was going to do? And I'm not going to solve that debate for you tonight. Uh, um, but it was a, a feat of athletic excellence uh, uh, that, that Ruth hit this home run. And even if he did call his shot, certainly it was a mixture both of skill and of luck. But the message of the Bible is that God not only called his shot, so to speak, ahead of time, but he orchestrated it perfectly and with certainty. See, Paul wants us to understand that the story of Jesus wasn't just a, a convenient theological interpretation which was laid upon events that, that happened after the fact, like this is how we can understand this story. But no, Paul and the other authors of the New Testament are, go to great pains to show that God had said ahead of time, uh, by foreshadowing and by prediction, this is what I'm going to do to rescue the world. And he does it all over the Old Testament in places like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 16 and Zechariah 12. The good news is grounded in a God who keeps his promises. And the gospel is a message which we are to believe and share. Paul's received a special commission to preach the gospel, uh, as, uh, as particularly to the Gentiles, but his purpose in preaching the gospel was to bring forth the obedience of faith, as Paul has it in verse 5. Uh, this was the proper response to this message of Jesus, fully God, fully man, died and raised from the dead. Now, there's a bunch of debate among commentators about what this phrase, obedience of faith, means. Does it mean uh, uh, faith as an act of obedience, or does it mean the obedience which accompanies faith? I'm also not going to address that issue. Uh, but what's important for us to see is that Paul sees the only proper response to this message of Jesus being an all-embracing, uh, a, 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 a trusting embrace of Jesus, the one who has done these things. When we're confronted with Jesus, we're called to trust in him. Now, this, if you know Paul's story at all, you know that this hadn't, hadn't always been his response. Once he, he hated everything to do with Jesus, he tried to, to squash any mention of him. But then he met Jesus, or rather Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And it was, for Paul at least, an experience like the light turning on. Sudden, suddenly he, he saw, here was Jesus the Son of God raised in power in all his glory and all his excellence. And Paul embraced this Jesus by faith. And when that happens, both the Bible and church history attest, the results are oftentimes explosive. Because when Paul realizes who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he has done for him, that here is one who died for him, who died for his sins and was raised that he might have life, Paul finds himself compelled to speak of this Jesus, wherever he goes, uh, uh, whenever he can, to whoever he can, right? Paul is eager to preach the gospel, he says in his introduction, among all the nations. The gospel is meant to be believed personally, but it's also meant to be shared broadly. Now, before we go any further with Paul's introduction, I need to ask the question, do you know Paul's gospel? Or rather, we might say, do you know the person who is the substance of Paul's gospel? Friend, do you know Jesus? 
I'm not asking if you know about him. There are plenty of people who know about Jesus, but do you know Jesus? I know that many uh, of you here have grown up in a very, uh, or in, in conservative context, and sometimes conservative contexts can make the mistake that knowing truths about Jesus is the same thing as knowing Jesus. And they're not the same thing. I can know plenty of things about the President of the United States. That does not mean that I know the President of the United States. And so it is with Jesus. We must not mistake knowing the answers for knowing the Savior. Because to know Him is to encounter Him in all His saving power as the one who died, as the one who rose from the dead. And that he did this so that all of my guilt and all of my shame would melt away as I walk into the loving embrace of my heavenly Father. And friend, I want to ask you, do you know this Jesus? Have you embraced him in this, this, with this trust, with this loving embrace? Maybe you're here and you're a young person and, and you haven't made profession of faith yet. Do you know this Jesus? Do you confess these things to be true? Maybe you're here and you're visiting uh, tonight exploring these things, maybe at the invitation of a friend. Do you know this Jesus? Here is one who died and was raised so that you might be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God. There is nothing more important than this. Do you know this Jesus? And Paul's come to know him. And so he's eager then to speak of him wherever he can. But Paul's eagerness to speak of him uh, is not just limited to those who have not yet heard his message. And that's where we see the second point of this sermon, the ministry of the gospel. So uh, after Paul greets uh, his uh, fellow Christians in uh, this this letter, he expresses his thanksgiving to God for them uh, on account of their faith. He says, reports of your faith have become known uh, throughout the world. And this is a source of great encouragement to Paul. He's very thankful for it. And uh, he knows that this church at Rome, living under the shadow of the Roman emperor, made up of Jews and Gentiles, they've come to love Jesus just like Paul has. And so he's thankful for that. And he says he prays without ceasing. He prays always for them. And one of the things that Paul prays for these Roman believers is that he might be able to visit them at last. Now, if you read through the the whole of of Paul's letter to the Romans, you read uh, in chapter 15 that Paul had longed to see the Romans uh, for many years, uh, but he had been detained uh, by other ministry commitments, and now he's hopeful that he's going to be able to see the church at Rome as he heads uh, past them and to Spain where he wants to take up some new missionary work. But Paul doesn't just see uh, the church at Rome as sort of a convenient pit stop on his way Uh, to Spain, he also wants to see them for another reason. And so I want you to see this from verse 11. You can look down at your Bibles. Because Paul there says he longs, he yearns to see these Christians face to face so that he could give them some spiritual gift. Now, Paul is not here talking about, I believe, uh, some extraordinary, supernatural, miraculous gift as is sometimes associated with uh, the Pentecostal uh, tradition. I don't think he has a a specific gift or set of gifts in mind that he intends to give to them. He's not just going to, here you go, here's the gift of administration or the gift of miracles. I don't think that's his point. Because he speaks rather broadly when he he mentions this. He, He desires to give them some gift, any gift, whatever that gift might be, And then he goes on to say, immediately, to speak of being mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And then he goes on even a little bit 
further on to, to speak of his eagerness to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, I find that to be an interesting phrase that Paul says he intends to preach the gospel to them, uh, to the church. Chris Rash observes that Paul does not tell the Roman Christians to set up an evangelistic meeting. And that's maybe what we might expect knowing uh, Paul's missionary zeal. He's eager to preach the gospel to unbelievers. But instead, because Paul has had the gospel uh, uh, grip him, he's eager to also proclaim the gospel to his fellow believers who are at Rome. So I think it's in this context that we're to understand when Paul speaks of imparting to them some spiritual gift, that he understood this as coming through his speaking of the person and work of Jesus with them. Paul wanted to strengthen his fellow Christians through this gift of gospel encouragement. And the idea here was to uh, reinforce them, to bolster them, so that they would be better positioned to withstand the trials and temptations which come from being a Christian, especially in a hostile context uh, like living in the capital of the empire. Now, Paul has said, he commends these Roman Christians that their faith is, is something he thanks God for. There's, there's a maturity that we should understand uh, exists within the church. And yet, even though this is true, Paul says he, he senses that there's a need to speak of Christ with them so that they would be strengthened and energized through the gospel of Christ so that they would hold fast to the person of Christ. But we need to say even more here because even as Paul expected to strengthen uh, the Roman Christians by speaking of Jesus with them, Paul did not see his ministry of encouragement as a one-way street. Notice verse 12, how Paul emphasizes this point of a mutuality. He says that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't know how you picture the Apostle Paul in your, your head, but I... I think I have good reason to think that here's the Apostle Paul, a man with massive theological intellect, a man who's extraordinarily godly, and maybe we might be thinking, well, Paul doesn't need this sort of encouragement. But clearly, Paul doesn't see that as being the case. Even the most mature of Christians stand in need of being ministered to by his fellow Christians through the message of Christ. Sometimes we might think that um, we're not needed to contribute to the church. After all, what could we uh, contribute? Uh, we look around and others seem like uh, they're more godly than we are, more intelligent, wiser, uh, more put together. They've been Christians longer than we have. And though we might not say it, uh, we come to think that since, in our estimation, we've got no contribution to offer, uh, that we're only to be recipients of ministry and not agents of ministry. And as it relates to Sunday, where uh, the preaching is good or at least adequate, uh, we'll go and we'll be instructed, we'll be exhorted, we'll be encouraged. Uh, we, we come to receive the gift of something to strengthen us, but we come not giving any thought into how we might have a special role in purposely strengthening someone else with the message of Christ. If we see the ministry as something that we receive, I wonder if it's sort of no wonder that sometimes people just say, well, maybe I can just stay home and live stream. Or maybe I'm not, maybe it's okay if I just sort of bail on, on Bible study this morning. Right? Why show up? Why, why come to youth group? 
But this way of thinking sees our need for strengthening, and surely we all have need to be strengthened. But this way of thinking fails to see that my brothers and sisters have an equal need to be strengthened in their faith and encouraged in their faith, and that God might choose me as an agent to see that strengthening take place. I think Paul's words here push us to think more broadly about how we think about going to church, uh, and, and he challenges us to think about what we can give when we come to church. Because as the church gathers for worship on Sundays or as we gather in homes or as we come together for prayer meeting, we each come with a ministry to give as we speak about Christ with one another. Because think, if, the, if Paul, right, an apostle, someone who's written the Bible, he saw himself not only as giving encouragement but also receiving encouragement and needing that when he met up with his fellow Christians, then when we come together as Christians, we should certainly not think any different. We should see Sundays and, and see various ministries as a type of gift exchange. As we speak about Christ with each other, as you encourage me uh, in my faith and I encourage you in yours. But practically speaking, how do you do this? How do we encourage one another uh, by each other's faith? Well, let me uh, uh, suggest four ways that you can embrace this vision of mutual encouragement. First, show up. Uh, This is so simple that we might be tempted to overlook it, but you cannot encourage others and you cannot be encouraged if you don't bother to show up. Paul needed to be present with the Roman Christians so that he could encourage them. So the first step that you want to take is just being present so that you're positioned to know how you can encourage other people, right? You know what the needs are, and, and God can providentially bring appointments where you can encourage other people. So whether that's worship services, whether that's Bible study, by just showing up, you're putting yourself in a position where you might be able to mutually uh, uh, encourage others and be mutually encouraged. Now, I know there's all sorts of reasons why uh, uh, we, we don't show up, uh, right? I didn't do my lesson. Uh, the kids are crazy. Been there, bought the t-shirt, um, uh, right? We just, um, it's been a crazy week. But I want to challenge us, especially at the start of a ministry or when we commit to, to, to doing something, when we commit to being a, a part of a group or being a part of a team, show up. God is placing you there in that women's Bible study or as a Sunday greeter on that service team, not just for what you're able to get out of it, but for how he might work through you to encourage other people. And you can't do that if you're not there. So show up. Secondly, serve. What a great way to put yourself in a position to encourage others and be encouraged. Commit to finding a practical way to serve others so that your faith in action will point your fellow believers to Christ. So how can you do that? Well, maybe you could sign up to serve on the nursery team because you are so excited about the gospel that you want the young moms and young dads in this congregation to have an opportunity, a much needed opportunity to be refreshed by the message of Jesus this week. Or offer to greet or serve uh, treats after the service or welcome people because you are so excited about the gospel that you want people to feel welcomed here and to linger so that they're going to have conversations in which there's a chance that they could be encouraged in their faith. Or make a point of having someone over to your house, maybe someone you don't know, and just ask them friendly questions. Get to know them. Ask how you can pray for them. Ask, maybe if you're feeling bold, how did you become a Christian? It's a great way to be encouraged as you share your stories with each other. Related to that third point, speak up. 
find opportunities to speak of Christ with other believers. As we talked about in the congregational forum uh, this morning, if you're there, one way you can do this is by making a point of talking with one another about the sermon after the service. So you can ask, well, what did you learn about Christ in this sermon? Or, or you could say, hey, I was convicted by this. What do you think about that? Or one of the things you could do is just commit to sending one text message each week to someone in your life with a scripture verse or a, just a message, here's how I'm praying for you, brother, or here's how I'm praying for you, sister. One text message. Many of us, though, uh, while we uh, might um, uh, dream of, of being great at spontaneity, uh, we might need some more formal structures uh, to encourage us to speak of Christ. And for that reason, uh, I think there's great value in being a part of a small group or Bible study because we're, we're coming together with people we're committing to say, we are going to speak about Christ with each other. We're giving permission to, to come together and ask, what are you learning about Jesus this week? Uh, what, what, is, what has he encouraged you with? Right, what, what, um, uh, what, where is he challenging you to grow? Those would be great questions for you to ask, even informally when you get together with Christian friends next time. And you do this because you're motivated by love to give them a gift to strengthen them and to strengthen them in the Lord. Fourth, Pray. Notice how Paul's eagerness to speak of the gospel leads him to pray for opportunities to do just that. He prays that God would connect him with the Romans so that he could share in gospel encouragement with him and we should take our cue from the Apostle Paul. So here's how you could do this. Ask God as you read your devotions, just pray, God, bring to mind someone who I could share this verse with this week. Ask him that. Or as you go to church, God, connect me with someone who I could encourage by praying with them or praying for them uh, or just uh, talking to them about who you are, reminding them of your faithfulness. I, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, it was a Saturday night, and I was praying that uh, God would help me on Sunday to uh, cross paths with one person who was visiting our church and one person who I could uh, encourage. And sure enough, even before uh, the service uh, started, I had met three visitors uh, and I was able to have a a conversation where at least, I think, uh, it was uh, encouraging to the other person. Now, I say this not to my credit, certainly. I should have been more ambitious in what I prayed for. Uh, But to point out that this is the type of prayer that God is pleased to answer. Maybe God won't answer the prayer right away. For Paul, it took time. Uh, Maybe he won't answer it in the way that we expect Uh, Certainly for Paul, he wasn't expecting to go to Rome under arrest, or at least I I don't think so at this point, but it's the type of prayer that God delights to answer. So pray for opportunities to encourage one another by speaking of Christ with one another. And all this leads us to our last point. We've considered the message of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel. Now very, very briefly, we'll consider the power of the gospel. Because verses 16 and 17 could easily demand several sermons on their own, but we consider them only to say this. The reason the message of Jesus should make us so eager to speak of him is because we believe that this message is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The message of Christ crucified and raised from the dead is unlike any message the world has to offer. Because by it, God is saving sinners of every stripe and every variety, and he is saving them from the judgment that they and that we justly deserve. And by this message, by the gospel of his son, God is is taking people from every tribe and tongue and nation and from every background 
all of whom as rebels against his holiness deserve his judgment, and he is bringing them into the kingdom of his beloved son, where he might lavish his goodness upon them. The gospel is, is, of Jesus is, is the means by which God is, is affecting this kingdom transfer. But the gospel is also the means by which we persevere in it. In 1 Corinthians 15, another place where Paul speaks very clearly about the essence of the gospel, he says in verse 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to it. See, for, the, the, for Paul, the gospel of Jesus is not just our ticket onto the salvation train, but the gospel is the rails by which God is bringing us safely home and safely into his presence. God is, is by the gospel, he's paid the price so I would be rescued from my sins, freed from the tyranny of the devil, It's a wondrous reality, but even more than this, we can say that the gospel is God's power to save me from the day of my conversion to the day where I die and go to be with the Lord. Christ and this message of him crucified and raised is the fuel, it's the energy, it's the power by which God is bringing you and me safely into the eternal rest. And when an individual, when a church is gripped by this gospel, when we grasp its power, we want to eagerly speak of it wherever we can, whenever we can, with whoever we can. Certainly we want to do that to those who are perishing, but we also want to do that to fortify those who are being saved. So might God grant this grace to us that we would be so gripped by this message of Jesus that we would want to speak of it wherever we can, that would be characterized by an ever-increasing eagerness to speak of Jesus, to see people come to him and be strengthened in him. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of your Son, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And Lord, we pray that we would see the gospel not merely as the message by which we are saved, and then um, we sort of put that on the shelf, but that the message of Christ, his person, his work, would daily fill our mouths as we seek to speak to our families, as we seek to speak to friends, as we seek to speak to fellow church members, as we speak to those who do not yet know you. But Lord, we pray that you would use the testimony of Christ to not only see people come to the obedience of faith, but also, Lord, to strengthen us in that faith. Use us, Lord, in the lives of one another to accomplish this strengthening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please uh, stand with me as we sing our song of response, which just celebrates this message of Jesus in Christ alone.
taste of encouraging one another uh, as we speak of Christ or sing of Christ with one another. And so it's, a, uh, it's just heartwarming. Uh, and God uses it to strengthen us. Receive now uh, the Lord's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.